0: Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on give Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, New Hope. How's everybody today? Enjoying this lovely weather that we've had? It's good to be in God's house, isn't it? Fourth of July coming up on Tuesday. We're hoping that we can get out and have some picnics and and enjoy, uh, enjoy some family time. Um... So, when I think of the 4th of July, uh, like many of you, you know, uh, my heart sometimes is drawn towards uh, just celebrating the freedoms that we have in this nation. You know, we we are certainly not a perfect nation, but we are a nation that's been blessed. And God has positioned each of us here for this time... And in celebration of, uh, of the freedom that we, that we celebrate on the 4th of July in our country as, 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 the, as the body of Christ, yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the freedom that we have is freedom that was purchased for us by our Lord who pursued us, gave himself for us, ran after us when none of us were worth running after, and he's given us a freedom that transcends nations, that transcends gender, that transcends uh, our ethnic backgrounds, or where we were born, uh, where we live, and he's done all of this because he's a sovereign God. And so stand up here on 4th of July... And uh, I, 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 you guys that know me know my sense of humor. So, you know, I talk with Nick, and I'm like, 4th of July, I could preach on freedom, preach on liberty. There's so many amazing things, 4th of July, that we could be preaching about. And he's like, Esther 3. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Esther 3, in a, in a book that does not mention God... And in Esther 3, guess what else isn't mentioned? Esther. We're going we're to explore chapter 3 today in the book of Esther in our series. And, and listen, guys, sometimes with these, with these, especially these Old Testament series, sometimes it's easier if you know how things turn out before you, before you study them because when you understand the end and what God has done in his providence, then you see the story and the pieces of the story and how those pieces move. You understand that truly we serve a sovereign God. Nothing happens by mistake in the kingdom of God. Do we have choices that we make in life? Of course we do. And we're gonna talk about that in Esther 3 because I think that there are a lot of wonderful applications in this passage that uh, this is the reason God gives us the totality of his word because it is his word, it is his holy word, and he has a lesson for us this morning. So we're gonna read from the Bible. We're gonna read the whole, uh, the whole chapter of Esther 3. Um, it's, it's only 15 verses, so join with me. We'll be reading, we'll put it up on the screen here if you have your Bible, you wanna join along, reading out of the ESV translation. It says this, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite now, let me just stop there for a second. <clears throat> Haman is just a miserable creature. He's just a, he's just a nasty, nasty guy, right? So when you hear his name, if you want to boo, that's okay. He'd be the kind of guy that when you mention Haman, everybody goes, boo, yeah, he's a terrible guy, so, all right? So King Ahasuerus promotes Haman, the Agagite, the son of... <laughs> I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. The son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, and the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Aseris. Aseris and Xerxes are interchangeable, by the way, different, different names, but same king. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, and the 12th year of King Aseris, they cast Pur, that is to say they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providence of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws, so that is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed, they will be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials over all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Aserus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we desperately need your help this morning as we study chapter 3 of Esther, so that we might understand what it says, that we, may, we might understand what it does not say, and that uh, we would be strengthened and encouraged in our walk and in our faith and in our obedience by understanding the lesson that you want to teach us this morning, lessons that through the transforming power of Jesus can change our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. Well, if you kept your Bible open, I didn't because I got to have some space up here. But I'm going to start in um, I'm going to start in verse ten, and in verse ten it says um, the king took his signet ring. From his hand, he gave it to Haman the Agagite. Now this, you have to understand, this was not simply a symbolic gesture. I believe it was a total abdication of responsibility. King Asteris is an interesting character as we're getting to know him. Those of you that have been studying with us over the last few weeks, um, he seems to operate far more on the basis of his glands than he does on the basis of his intellect or the strength of his convictions or principles. And as a result of that, we see him here as something of somebody that kind of moves back and forth, someone who is expansive in terms of his, his, his own greatness, and yes, at the same time, is unwilling to make decisions, good decisions that are necessary. And when we read this chapter, we're left with the question, who actually is in charge here? We think in terms of power and authority as we read through the third chapter, clearly it's not the king, despite all of his proud boasts. And Mordecai, as we'll see here in a moment, appears to be overlooked in the king's honor list, as it were. Esther doesn't even appear in the chapter, so she has nothing to say in this chapter. The Jewish population is under the sentence of death. And the citizens of Susa are brought justifiably to a place of perplexity and confusion. So are we then to assume that the people of God, upon whom he has set his affection, the Jewish nation, are now subject to the whims of a king who's increasingly out of touch as he sits down to share a drink with his buddy Haman? Let's notice as we try and find a way through this chapter, first of all, what we're told concerning the promotion of Haman himself. It's very obvious that the king has made this decision. We're not sure why or how or on the basis of what, whether he has operated arbitrarily to advance Haman to this position, but nevertheless, Haman is now advanced to have a throne of his own that is above all of the officials who were with him so that all of the king's servants and all of those who were still within the framework of the government, all of them now are responsible under this guy, Haman, and are subservient to him. And this actually follows on from this way in which Mordecai at the end of chapter two, remember what happened with Mordecai? So he received no promotion and no exaltation, whether he anticipated that maybe he should get some, something special for what he did is anyone's guess. And when we note what he did, we have to remember that it was back in, in chapter two where he basically saved the king's life. We're told that he was now not advanced to any position of authority in the kingdom, but simply despite the fact that he has done his job of blowing the whistle on a couple of characters that were planning on assassinating the king, despite the fact that he provided a very worthy service to the Persian Empire, all he gets are a few lines in the bottom of this book. I wonder, was he disappointed? I don't know. Maybe one day we can find that out. I hope. Disappointed at being passed over. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been passed over for something? Maybe a promotion? What did you say when you came home to your husband or your wife? Did you say, hey, what a great day I had. I was passed over for a promotion. Probably not, right? Probably not. Probably said something like, I can't believe it after all I've done after all the work that I put in, after how I have benefited my company, my business, whatever your situation is, after all these trips I've taken, after I have always made my boss look so daggone good, and all I get now is maybe a couple of lines on my resume while somebody else advances. Well, maybe Mordecai felt a little bit like that, disappointed that all he got was a couple of lines at the bottom of the page. But if only he knew how significant those lines are. Now think about that. I mentioned it simply that I might reinforce this point, and this is the first point this morning. The providences of God are seldom self-interpreting, and it's usually wrong for us to try to understand what's going on in the immediacy of the moment. Can't place God in that box. It'll drive us crazy. Going through a difficult circumstance, going through a difficult time, and we try to understand in that moment what exactly God is doing, rarely do we truly understand that in that moment. Often it takes a good bit of time for us to stand that. We can't figure these things out ourselves. Maybe it's a tragic circumstance. Maybe it's a betrayal. Maybe it's a tough diagnosis. What in the world is God doing now? It's a justifiable question, but you're probably not going to get the correct answer by trying to overanalyze it within the framework of the here and now. Because what God is doing with us and in us and through us and for us may be something far more significant. That's why it's not really a good idea to be overly disgruntled when you're overlooked. It usually is not a good idea when we're to think that we should be exalted to positions that we think we should be achieving to suggest to ourselves that we have done all these things because in the challenge of those moments, remember God remains sovereign in all of those details. And most of our understanding will be seen certainly by looking through the rear view mirror instead of looking out the windshield. That's where our understanding often occurs. Certainly, I think that would be true for Mordecai. When you have the opportunity to look backwards, it creates good questions for us today that I'm not gonna explore. But I'm gonna ask you this question. And this is a this is a difficult question but it's one that I think that we should ask of ourselves as followers of Jesus. Have you allowed Jesus to be the lord of your past? Have you allowed Jesus to be the lord of your past? Terry and I were in Ocean City a couple weeks ago we were sitting on the beach in the 2 hours of good weather that we had over the course of 5 days and a young man walked past me and he had a shirt on and it caught my attention. And the shirt said, stop tripping over the things that are behind you. (laughs) Stop tripping over the things that are behind you. Now that's a great topic for a future sermon and I'm not gonna go too far down that road this morning. But how many times do we let the circumstances of our past continue to plague us, to continue to control us? When we say, Jesus, I want to be yours, we think, now my future is his. Well, you know what? He also wants to redeem your past. Well, back to Haman, because it's with the promotion of Haman that we're concerned. So he's introduced to us here in verse 1 as the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And you know, if you're like me, when you read the Old Testament sometimes, you can kind of gloss over some of these things, Right? What's an Agagite? Hamadeth, where do they come up with these, these names? But in verse 10, it's reinforced again. He's described in that way again. So when you have repetition, you know that the writer wants us to understand something about this. And in verse 10, if you allow your eye to scan it, you will see that there's a little phrase that is added to that designation. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha. And here we go the enemy of the Jews. Now that is very significant. There's nothing in the Bible that is just extraneous. And that little piece of information here in chapter three is important, and I wanna show you why. Let me give you a little bit of background. So if you have your Bible and you wanna turn, you can look in Exodus for a moment. In chapter 17, verse eight, it says this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, you better go get some men and go out and fight Amalek. So Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought with Amalek. And then you have this wonderful scene where Aaron and Hur, remember this, hold up up Moses' hands, right? And that's the scene where as, as his hands are held up high, the battle's going really well. As he gets tired and his hands start to go down, the battle doesn't go so well. So they're holding up. Moses' hands. And the first thing we're told, in verse 13, we're told that the Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. God likes to write things in books, by the way. He likes those memorials. Those memorials are for us. They're for his people. There's remembrances, they're cornerstones, they're places where we could go back in terms of reaffirming and referencing our faith. But write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. What? What is he reciting? That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Okay. <laughs> and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. So here you've got, right at the very outset of things, this battle that ensues. You turn forward to 1 Samuel in chapter 15 and Saul has now been made king, right? Saul is the king. Having been made king, he's given charge by God, and the charge is to destroy the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. That's Exodus chapter 17. God says, that didn't escape my notice. I understand what's going on here. Now, this is what I want you to do. Go and strike Amalek and devote the destruction to all they have, this is God, and God's command is absolutely clear. And you go down to verse 9, and you read this. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Remember the story? He spared the king and the best of the sheep. So they heard that what God had said, God gave, a, gave them a very clear, very clear comprehensive command, destroy the whole shooting match. They get into the process, and they say, that's not such a good idea. Uh, I think we'll keep the king, and I think we'll keep some of the best stuff, right? We know better than God. The junk will will destroy the junk. We we can agree on that. But the good stuff, we want to keep some of the good stuff. And this brings us to the second point of today's lesson, and that is that the wisdom of God is far greater than the wisdom of man. God is not arbitrarily giving this directive. It is purposeful and failure to pay attention to it will have consequences. And although we're moving to the third part of the third main point of this lesson, don't be confused to think that we're three-quarters done. <laughs> I, just want, I just want to say that. But these two parts, they tie so closely together that the wisdom of God is far greater than the wisdom of man, and the failure to obey God always has consequences. Always. When we listen to the suggestions of others rather than the directions of God, then we will live with the implications of that. And that's exactly what happens here. And you're going to see why this all ties back together in Esther. And in verse 24, after Saul is made aware of the fact that he isn't going to be the king anymore, okay, he says to, uh, to Samuel, I have sinned. Notice, for I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. So he's not trying to cover himself, he's not trying to, to, to weasel his way out of that. Earlier in the chapter, he tries to do that. But he says, when he says, well, I really did obey. And, and if you remember the story, it's like, well, why do I hear sheep then? <laughs> if you killed them all, why, why do I still hear them? And then Saul came into a realization. His heart uh, understood that he had, he had sinned against the Lord and what we understand in this is that partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is, is, is not okay. If God tells us to do something or he shows us in his word what it is to, that we're to do and we do 80% of it, that's not obedience, okay? And this is what he says, he, uh, Saul, uh, Saul, King Saul says, he says, while I have to transgressed, and I have disobeyed the commandment of the Lord in your words, and then he tells us why, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Ouch. Does that land on us today sometimes when we're not as obedient to God or completely obedient to God as we should? Why? Because we're listening to the voices of others. Maybe it's our friends. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's somebody at work, and we know what we're supposed to do but we don't. And as a result of him fearing the people and obeying their voice instead of fearing God and obeying God's voice, we have an old simmering kind of conflict that even today reproduces itself over and over and over again. You know, God, hear me, God is a God of restoration and he is a God of forgiveness. Can I get a big amen to that? Thank God, because if not, this is a waste of time. God is a God of restoration, and God is a God of forgiveness. But our failure to obey God always has consequences. So now we move on to chapter 3, okay? Back to chapter 3. The power now resides from a human perspective in the hands of Haman. Boo, yeah. He's promoted to a place of significant usefulness in the kingdom, and the writer wants us to understand who he is. He is the Agagite. Now, if we don't know our Bibles, we just pass over that. It's like saying he's from Dundalk. (laughs) Or maybe he's from Maryland. Um, And we move on. Does it really matter? Oh, here, it really, really matters. And it really matters when you realize in chapter 2, verse 5, the lineage of Mordecai, because Mordecai has been introduced not only as a Jew, but we've been given this background, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know who Kish was. Kish was Saul's father. All right, so here is Mordecai, a Jew, whose lineage goes back to Saul. Saul, who is the king and is told to destroy the Amalekites, Saul, his forefather, says, no, I'm not going to destroy them. It doesn't really matter. God says, yes, it matters. So here we are in fifth century Persia, and this Jewish man, Mordecai, is confronted by the eagle of an Agagite who shouldn't even exist, but he exists because of the disobedience of Saul. <clears throat> now I say to you again, disobedience has implications don't try and explain away our disobedience and the immediacy of the moment either. Don't think for a moment that our disobedience on a straightforward command of God is something that is a meaningless encounter. It has consequences. It will for you. It will for me. It does for you. It does for me. It will for those who love you as well. It will have consequences for those who live under your influence as well. God is not mocked when he says his commands, when he executes his warnings, when he says what he wants done. That's what makes this so profoundly significant. So what is the reaction to Mordecai or the reaction of Mordecai to the promotion of Haman? Scripture says Mordecai did not bow. Uh, There's nothing hard about that, is there? In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow... Haman didn't actually see this in the beginning. It was was the rest of his guys that noticed it. In verse 3, they're inquiring, why is it that you don't bow down? The king's servants ask. In verse 4, they're apparently getting worked up about this because they speak to him again day after day. He pretty well puts his fingers in his ears. (laughs) He won't listen to him. And he says, I'm not going to bow." And that triggers their desire to go to Haman and to tell Haman basically to see what his position on this is going to be, that here's this Jewish man, Mordecai, that will not bow and how Haman is going to prevail in this situation. And it's very clear that scripture tells us that Mordecai, that this position he has taken is related to the fact that he is a Jew. Now, many commentators have spent a fair amount of time trying to explain to us why Mordecai didn't bow, and it's all conjecture, <clears throat> because we're not told anything other than what we see in this passage that would allow us to, by inference, draw a true conclusion, other than the fact that he was a Jew. That's all we need to know. That's all that we need to know. His lineage his, uh, was from, from Saul. Um, he was elevated, Haman now is elevated to this position of power and authority. His lineage is from Amalek. Now we got a huge conflict, a huge conflict that goes back down through a long period of time. So you don't need to spend a lot of time in, in, in home Bible study, you can do all you want researching to find out why didn't he bow, we really don't know. And I'm not gonna say it's irrelevant, but it is somewhat unimportant because in the rest of the story, all that we need to know is that his refusal to bow became the catalyst for the unbelievable fury that we're gonna see from Haman, which was his response. You see, Mordecai was dealing with a question, namely, how could a good Jew and a good citizen, a good Jew also be a good citizen in Persia? He obviously was committed to being a good Jew. If he was an insurrectionist, when he got an earshot of the fact that these guys were plotting to assassinate the king, he would have either joined or kept quiet, right? We, we realize this in chapter 2, that, that he brought that forth. This is, uh, 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 you know, he could have said, no, this is great. They're going to they're gonna take out the king. I don't like the king. They're going to knock him off. It's a good thing. But he did not do that. Rather, he said, what can I do to help the king? and he could have covered up for those guys, but he didn't. No, see, he's a citizen of Persia, but he's also a Jew. He's not going to allow his king to be threatened and imposed upon that way. So you see just little pieces of conflict here, right? There's So there's no sense in which we can cast Mordecai as like a revolutionary. He wasn't opposed to the system uh, now, it's far more difficult than that. How can he be a loyal citizen um, and a loyal Jew? And I think that that's a, I think that's a good struggle for us as well, right? As believers, don't we struggle with that sometimes? How can I be a good Christian and be a good American? Because they're not always going to be hand in hand. Now, hear me, hear me, church. I believe we live on the greatest nation on this planet, I believe that the freedoms that we have are freedoms that were secured by the blood of men and by the grace of God. I strongly believe that. But we're not a perfect nation, right? We, We wanna always get better as a nation. And sometimes we're gonna have that conflict. How do I maintain myself as a true disciple, as a true believer of God? And yet, when I see things around me that are clearly not of God in my nation, what is my responsibility? How do I move in those situations? And that is not something that I can give you a quick answer to today. This is something that is part of us working out our faith. How can I be a good Christian and be a good American? It's a great time for us to consider this as we consider uh, as the 4th of July is on, on, on top of. it. It's a constant question, isn't it? Do you guys struggle with that sometimes? I struggle with that sometimes. Um, how do we, as citizens of the land of the free and the home of the brave, how do we uphold our Christian principles in an environment and in a structure of government that, although it guarantees us religious freedom, at the same time, sometimes it approves of practices that violate the laws of God? It's, the, it's, the, it's, 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 it's our experience how do we live then, <clears throat> recognizing that all human power is ultimately limited, right? All human power is ultimately limited. And also, how do we live recognizing that the power that God insti- that was given and instituted by God is exercised by flawed and sinful p- human beings? When that power is executed, it can violate the authority of God, the truth of his word. It almost inevitably leads to the abuse of power, and there is a quest for power in this nation, if you haven't noticed it. And I don't preach politics, but I don't care what party you're part of. It's, there's a quest for power. We see it every single day. So this is surely a dramatic irony right now that the United States Supreme Court, as I understand it in their chambers, as they execute their decisions, they're in a room where the entire Ten Commandments are engraved in the structure of the room. But there are many people that believe that man under the guise of freedom and tolerance has the ability to renegotiate the terms of engagement established by God. The creator of the universe, uh, you know, says this, and yet we kind of scratch our heads sometimes and we grieve the foolishness of man when it goes sometimes against the laws of God. But here we are. We must uphold the context in which we live within the framework and jurisdiction of what God has provided. And yet here for Mordecai, he comes to a tipping point. He said, I'm not going to do that. Right now, the issue uh, is what the state may determine to be allowable with the freedom to live outside of that. You know, if the day comes when that, you know, that moves from merely being allowed to being demanded of us, as Christians, we're going to have to take a stand. We have to figure out what that looks like, and there's not an easy answer. But there is a time, and we see this in Acts 4, where we will have to obey God rather than obey man. We're not there, but we may find ourselves there before too long. And that's why it's good to, to go back and to look in Scripture to see what lessons God has for us. And don't miss this point either, <clears throat> that when, when those things start to prevail as they do, low standards of morality provide a wonderful opportunity a wonderful opportunity for the Christian speak church to speak life and to speak love into our culture. Do you hear me? But I'm going to tell you this, and this isn't, this isn't easy to hear. We can't speak life if we don't speak it in love. We, we, cannot, we cannot tell people what we're against if we don't show people what we're for and show people that God is for them. This is, this is a particular struggle for the Christian church. And unfortunately, you can see what's going on across our nation. Churches are, churches are more and more doing this. Complete embrace of the culture, everything's okay. Complete denial of the culture, nothing is okay. And the church is losing their effectiveness to speak into people's lives because you can't even have a conversation with somebody that you don't agree with. When love is at the table, you can have a conversation about anything. And I believe that that's a lesson that we learn through the book of Esther. All right, I'm dancing around here a little bit. So the reaction of Mordecai here leads to the destruction, a decision for the destruction of all of the Jews. But well, you will notice that it says very straightforward, at the, at the straight for, in a very straightforward way at the end of verse 5, Haman was filled with fury. He was so furious that the death of Mordecai would not be enough for him. He decided that he was going to have to take out the entire people of Mordecai. One commentator observes, no proud man ever received the respect and regard that he thought he was due. It wasn't sufficient for Haman to have all the servants of the king, everyone in the government structure paying homage to him, because there was one Jew named Mordecai, and, and this Jew upset him so much that he wanted to wipe out his entire people. Hmm. You wonder, how can that be, you know? It's like you had a really bad falling out with a friend in Tawny Town, so you just went Tawny Town, wiped off the map. Right? Yeah, it might be a little bit, just a little bit of an overreaction here. What's the deal here? How do we account for the fact that one Jew saying no in the prospect of the destruction uh, uh, brings about the prospect of the destruction of the entire Jewish community. And I'll give you the answer to that. There's a simple answer. It's the, it's the evil one, right? The answer is Satan. Satan understands that the deliverer, the Messiah, will come out of the line of the Jews. Therefore, he is committed to the destruction of the Jews uh, that, so that no deliverer may come. And that's the explanation, right, that we see from Herod, Back in Scripture, right, what does Herod do? Kill them all? Kill them all? All the, all, the, all the two-year-olds and under, take them all out, let's kill every male. What? I know you're upset, but isn't that is just a little over the top? What is he trying to do? What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to make sure that he obliterates the prospect of the Messiah. This all goes back to Genesis 3.15, which says, He promises that deliverer will come down this line and the evil one is going to oppose it every step of the way. Well, I'm going to keep moving here. And so when we read this, we see that Haman used all of his power. He's a conniving person. He's malicious. He's untruthful. He's callous. He just represents the activities of his father. And who's his father? The devil is his father. Remember Jesus who said to the Jews, I think it's in John 8, you know, they said, hey, don't be telling us these things. And Jesus said, we have Abraham as our father. You remember what Jesus said? He said, you have Abraham as your father. As a question. If you had Abraham as your father, you would do what Abraham did. But as it is, you are actually doing what your father likes because your father is the devil. Ouch. Ouch. He's the father of lies, and you telling lies too. And the reason you tell lies is because the one to whom you belong. Well, that's a pretty dramatic statement, isn't it? A pretty dramatic statement coming from the most loving person <laughs> in human history. But it's the truth, and we can't get around it. And so here we are. We're in the 12th year. We're told, so Esther's been, understand, we're in chapter 3. Esther's been queen now for five years. Five years have gone by. Five years. And they're going to cast lots to try to find the lucky day. They're going to pick the day for the destruction of the Jews. And we see, and I'm going to, I'm going to move forward here a little bit quicker, that, 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 that God's got all this under control. He, he's even controlling the game. He's even controlling the game. And they pick a day. where they pick a day, and the day is the day that actually is, is when their Jews are to be celebrating the Passover. Now, I will give you a, a heads up here. You got to stay with us through the rest of the series to see how this all plays out. Because it doesn't all play out here in chapter 3. But remember, we've seen a recurring phrase in chapter 3. And that recurring phrase was this, what was pleasing to the king? The king liked to be pleased. That's one thing we can probably agree on. He liked to be pleased. Vashti did not please the king. What happened to her? She's gone, right? She's gone. Esther pleased the king. What happens to Esther? She's in. Right? Okay. So, Haman somehow pleased the king along. Oh, he, likes, he likes Haman. And, and, and I'm thinking, this king, like, he's, he's not a very good guy. And right? he's just, this is just not a good one. So, Haman plays on that. He plays on this, this, this narcissism that this king, you know, exposes. Tell me how great I am give me what I want when I want it. He plays on all of this in setting up this plot. Because think about this, okay? Mordecai saved the king's life because he tells Esther of the plot. So why would he want to wipe out the entire, not just the person, but that entire line? Well, what what did Haman offer? He offered him more money. You know, he's playing on these things. And so here's the last thing I want to share with you today. Just one, one more thing, uh, for, for us to chew on as we go into our last point that, so this is, this is to happen, um, we're like a year out, right? They, they announced the date and it's to happen on the 13th day of the month, the day before the celebration of the Passover. They decided on this day, this is the day to, to, to establish this edict and bring it to pass. So the people of God now becoming aware of this horrible uh, uh, situation are in a state of chaos, but they're gonna gather and celebrate the Passover, so what we've got here is a real issue on their hands because the reason they gather to celebrate the Passover, do you remember, is to remember their history, to remember that they were in impossible situations before. And what did God do? He delivered them from those situations. So this is a dramatic, this is, this is where we see the sovereignty of God. And so are we gonna trust God on the basis of our, 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 our history Can you go back to points in your life where you've seen the the working of God and you trust him? Because like like earlier, I talked about the memorials. We each have memorials that God has set up in our lives, places where we can go back and we go, I remember, I remember when God did that. And I remember his faithfulness to me. Well, this is what the nation is struggling with now. And of course, what we're going to discover is that we can, we, we almost can't wait to keep moving on. But the very means planned for their destruction was the means by which God was to provide their deliverance. So stay tuned over the next few weeks as we explore that. Finally, we see there was confusion in the city. Um, and, and little did Haman know that God was in charge. See, Haman thought he was in charge. The king thought he was in charge. Um, how about us? (laughs) Sometimes we think we're in charge, right? And sometimes, quite honestly, we do take charge. But if you go backwards a little bit to one of the points of the sermon, when we take charge and we do it with pride and we do it with sin, we're always going to reap a consequence for that, okay? So, here's the thing. The king abdicates his responsibility, when, when, when responsibility is abdicated, what fills that void? Usually something that's not very good, and that's what we see in this story. When the king abdicates his responsibility, Haman's treachery fills the vacuum. And when leadership in any place at any time vacillates between those two things, the abdication of responsibility or the invasion of some type of treachery, then the people of God who are committed to justice politically, economically, socially, spiritually, we have a responsibility to speak out, out of the life that God has given us, a transformed life of the gospel, to say to people, listen, this type of leadership is not okay. Listen to the leadership that Jesus speaks about because this is what Jesus, this is how Jesus leads. It's not a leadership that stays quiet. It's not a leadership that seeks to absolve itself of any responsibility. It's not a leadership that is marked by treachery. That is the leadership of the kings. That is the leadership of asterisk That's the leadership of Haman and many others that we read about and many others that we see today <laughs> all around the world. And I would suggest here also in our own nation, those who are considered rulers, those that Lord over the people. But Jesus, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. So in other words, it brings us back to the nature of the gospel, and it is only as we live the gospel, it's only as we then, on the strength of the gospel, critique the abuses of power that we learn to rest in the confidence that comes from knowing that while heaven and earth is going to pass away, God's word will never pass away. And whatever the generations yet to come are going to experience in our land, and as a father, as a grandfather, and I know many of you, we have, we're concerned about that, aren't we? What is this world that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are going to live up in? Whatever that genera- those generations come will experience our land, uh, our land that has been historically incredibly blessed, arguably beyond any other place, what generations yet to come will experience is in part going to be measured by our response to the abuses of power that we see in our own nation. I haven't thought all of this out. I'm in the process of doing that, but the time will come, and the time may be now, where we have to take a stand on certain things in our country because of the ramifications that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are going to reap down the road. But here's one thing I can tell you. You don't change the world by edict. You don't change the world by, by statute. You change the world by love. That's how Jesus changed the world, by pursuing all of us, by pursuing all of us. And I think we should take that to heart. Here's the last thing I want to say to you. Our fortress in all of this is our God. Our confidence is God. And in this, we can rest. We can rest because God is sovereign and God will always be available to his people. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. Now I know, here's the thing. Esther 3, that's, a t- that's tough, right? This isn't, like a f- this isn't like fun stuff up here, right? But we're building the case, and you're going to continue to see throughout the next several chapters a- a- about how God moves. And I'll whet your appetite just a little bit. I read one commentator this week that said, you know, Mordecai and Esther are more like Jonah than like Daniel. And that started making me think, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna chase that down this morning, but here's the whole point of that. It's not what these guys are doing. It's what God's doing. And he's using them to do it, right? He is using Mordecai, he is using Esther. He used Jonah, he used Daniel, and you know what? He can use you too, and he will use you, but you have to make yourself available to him for him to do that. Let's pray this morning, and then we're gonna move into a time of communion. Father, I thank you, Lord, that um, in, in studying through the book of Esther, uh, Father, there's things there that are a little bit uncomfortable at times, And Father, there are things where um, our minds need to continue to meditate on our response and how we take the, the, uh, the discipleship that we see through some of these principles in Esther and we apply it to our lives. But Father, I give you praise this morning for so many things, Lord, but none more than Jesus, who made his life and his death available to everybody in the sound of, within the sound of my voice and everybody outside of this place, Lord. If only we will approach him with humility and recognize that it is through that relationship, God, that we can find joy, we can find peace, we can find forgiveness. We can find in us the person that we were created to be. Lord, as we move into...